0: Hey, Julie.
1: Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing well. We just finished up an excellent interview with our guest today, a WUSA anchor, reporter, and also adjunct professor at University of Maryland, Adam Longo, who happens to be an endurance athlete. So it was quite an interview. He was awesome.
0: He's great. And um, I always love it when our like our local like you know journalists that we have that we see all the time are also runners and I, I just feel kind of a, a kinship to them so um, we've we've uh, known him for quite some time and. Um, have kind of followed his journey as an athlete and um, it's always fun to see what he's up to so yeah it was a great great conversation.
1: yeah so before we kick it over to Adam we just wanted to talk a little bit about the big running news of this week so Lisa why don't you share.
0: Well, it's a big Boston Marathon running news. Uh, Boston BAA announced that if races can happen in October in Boston, uh, that the marathon will be on Monday, October 11th, which is Columbus Day. So that is um, big news and sort of unexpected. I think we all um, kind of thought if, if it was going to be set in the fall, it would be similar to last year, which would be that first weekend, I think it's the first or second, sorry, the second Monday in um, September. And so we had actually gone the Monday after Labor Day. Um, we had actually gone in and booked a cancel <laughs> a hotel with a cancellation policy, a liberal cancellation policy just to be safe for that weekend, thinking it would be the same. Um, so I think we were a little surprised also because uh, a lot of the majors are around then. Um, Chicago is the day before. So I don't think anybody anticipated that Boston would pop Boston on, you know a Monday in the middle of all of those races but really when you take a step back and you know we've talked to Dave McGilvery before and we know what goes on um, even on a smaller scale in, in organizing races that there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of factors that have to be taken into account including safety security, the police forces, the facilities that they use so you know the high school in Hopkinton uh, that in middle school that are used, they can't be in session assuming schools will be in session so columbus day is more a it has to be a holiday like patriots day um if it's going to be on on a on a monday and um you know if it, if it, there was some talk about well maybe they should do it on a saturday or sunday but there are other um things that events that are planned in the city and other considerations that make it really it's it's a huge logistical uh Undertaking to coordinate all of the, you know, all of the different cities along the way, and um, and and all of the moving parts. So I think it makes sense that this was the date that was selected. It's you know going to be a challenge for people who maybe signed up for for Chicago. And really, at the end of the day, it's great that we have a date, but this is assuming that this can happen. And and I will give you my um, my my hypothesis on this is that races will be allowed to happen, and it will be on a smaller scale and they're you know what wh- how smaller that is is it just elite or is it just the top thousand runners do they have to eliminate charity runners and invitational runners because of you know there there are you know a good number of those every year do they have to either cut back or reduce those what are the numbers gonna look like and then the following from that, what is the what is the um, qualifying cutoff going to look like? You know, the buffers maybe be 10, 15, 20 minutes, who knows? So, so my guess is that they're going to try to put something on the roads of Boston, from Hopkinton to Boston on, on the 11th. What that look like looks like is really going to depend on what happens in the next several months in terms of the vaccine and what the numbers look like, the COVID numbers look like. You know, are there any of these new variants that are out now? Do those Spike our numbers up again in the spring, Um, so I I do think that there will be something it's just a question of what so I I was thinking through the logistics last night of you know the buses, Like, can you imagine being on a bus with all the people that you know we're normally on a bus with from Boston to Hopkinton Um, so so even if it does happen, I, I think that there will be modifications, you know the Expo um and, and there are people talking about you know if they are going to run there are some people who think they're going to run Chicago one day and then Boston the next we would not recommend that but you know how do you get your you're already talking about well how do I get my packet for Boston and run Chicago well we may not even have packet pickup maybe they'll be mailed this year because you know to reduce um touch points and 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 um and crowds so we don't know what it's going to look like but the date is out there so um so that I To me, even knowing that it may look different and we may not even get to run it in person there, um, it it gave me a little uplift this week to to just have that um, announcement and to see it on the calendar. Maybe false hope.
1: I agree. I I love having a date out there. It brings me hope. It gives me a little bit of purpose to structure my own training. And it also helps sort of understand what their thinking is. Everyone's doing their best to bring races back. We want. We want racing to survive. We want racing to be there when all of this is over. And the fact that the World Marathon majors are lining up dates, all of them consecutive in the fall within six weeks, it's going to make for an exciting fall. And hopefully we can be part of that. But even if we can't, just knowing that races will exist. And then the following year, there will be races, I believe, as they were before. So
0: it's a light, yeah. we haven't had a light in a long time and it's a light at the end of the tunnel. So, and um, I don't know, I just loved the thought of being back in Boston, <laughs> like just, just that is making me happy. And if it ends up being, you know, false hope, then that's fine. I've had my week of being happy and, um, and, and, and it's all good. So, yeah, so that, that's where we are with Boston and and we are on our end getting ready for uh, this Sunday evening, part one of two parts of our running through menopause webinar. And we put this together um, just because we as coaches and as as masters women, female runners, um, noticed that there really wasn't a lot of information out there on menopause and how how the changes that our bodies go through um, impact our running, our training, our recovery, our racing. Um, What does it look for us over the next five, 10 years? How do we plan appropriately? And um, so we put this together kind of in our own interest of like figuring out for ourselves and for our runners that we coach. And um, as of today, we have 250 people registered from all around the world. Um, So we are really excited. It's not too late to register. You can go on our website. There's a link to the registration on our social media, a link to the registration. Um, It is Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern time and it's um, free. it is free so sign up join us we are really excited we've gone through our you know our presentation with um dr toby beckerman and rachel miller and i think we're all really covering um really important information that 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 women want to know we've been taking questions ahead of time and uh they're they're all very similar and it's they're all questions that we hope to touch on um during the webinar. And I think just having that information all in one place from people who really know what they're talking about is is going to be helpful.
1: Yes, and that is actually part one because we are doing part two. We have a date now, February 28th, also a Sunday evening at seven o'clock Eastern Standard Time. We will open up registration for that as soon as part one is over. And our focus in that webinar is going to be specifically on nutrition and strength training um, during running through menopause. So this one is focused more on the medical aspect and, um, the perspective of a PT and the perspective of us as coaches and how to restructure your training. And the next segment will be more about nutrition and strength training. So we hope people will also join us for that for part two. So we're really excited and it's not too late to register. We're going to close registration early on Sunday, just because, Um, registration um, closes at
0: 5 p.m. because we need to be able to get the Zoom link out to everybody um, who registers. So um, if you haven't registered yet and you're listening to this on Sunday, you have until 5 p.m. Sunday, uh, January 31st, you have until 5 p.m. Eastern time to register.
1: Yes, so we're gonna wrap this up because we had a very lengthy and fun and informative conversation with Adam Longo. So we wanna make sure we get to Adam um and adam shared a lot about his background so just briefly we met adam at wusa9 when we were uh, on air doing a story about safety for runners and he is a very accomplished distance runner himself he will talk more about that he's also a very accomplished journalist he is currently the 5 p.m. anchor at wsa 9, which is the CBS affiliate. He also is an investigative journalist and reporter and an adjunct professor for the University of Maryland. So we were so honored to have him on our podcast today. Uh, we know that our listeners will enjoy what he had to say from the perspective of an endurance athlete as well as a reporter. It was a very timely and fun conversation. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week and I look forward to presenting with you this Sunday. I will see you on Sunday, on Zoom. Bye.
0: Bye. Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at faster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more and be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners.
1: Adam Longo, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: I am so excited to talk to both of you.
1: So Adam, um, we met you at WUSA 9, which is the CBS affiliate here in the Washington, D.C. area, and um, we did a story on running tips with you. But quickly, we started talking about running and and we bonded immediately because not only are you an Excellent news anchor and reporter, but you are also an excellent runner and triathlete. So um, before we get into both, uh, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about who you are and about your career and your running and triathlon history?
2: sure so first thanks for that glowing introduction i I appreciate that uh just a little bit first of my professional background uh for 21 years i've been a full-time news anchor and reporter at a variety of local news stations across the country i've worked in virginia tennessee florida arizona uh and now here in uh, maryland and, and washington dc um over that time, I've covered you know a, a variety of stories, the, the, the bread and butter stories that you'd see on, on your local news, uh, government crime feature, uh, and, and most of the jobs I've had have had a, a news anchoring uh, component to them. Um, I landed back here in the DC metro area in 2015. I say landed back because uh, I'm a graduate of the University of Maryland. I have a degree in uh, in broadcast journalism, and I, I did a minor in uh, pre law and government and politics. Um, so coming back to Maryland and coming back to the D.C. area was something that I always wanted to do. That's where my career trajectory was taking me, and then. I uh, knew I wanted to land back here uh, after spending um, five years in Florida and three years in Arizona. So in my time since back here uh, at WUSA 9 in uh, 2015, uh, I've been uh, a news anchor of the five o'clock broadcast on WUSA 9 with a local CBS affiliate um, and also a, a news reporter for our, our 11 o'clock news. And I, I do a lot of things. I do stories about government and, and government accountability. Um, I do feature stories, verify stories. Um, I think you could classify me as a, as a hard news reporter. Uh, and then as a side job, I also, for the past four years, have been an adjunct professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. So I teach one class in the fall semester, uh, teaching uh, rising juniors and seniors the ins and outs of putting together a television news story.
0: Love Love that. Funny story just to share that I grew up in, in this area, in the Montgomery County area. And um, I always, that, that was my dream was to be a broadcast journalist. That's what I wanted to, I was a news junkie here when I was younger. And um, I, you know, I applied to colleges and I got into Maryland and I got into Emory University in Atlanta. And I, I wanted to go where the weather was warmer. And so I went down to Emory and I got there and I said, I'm gonna major in broadcast journalism. And they said, we don't have a journalism major. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay, so I guess I'll be a poli sci business double major. So, um, so I kind of got like quashed from the, and I keep thinking like if I'd gone to Maryland, I would not have been able to do that broadcast journalism major. But <clears throat> so, I one of the coolest, great.
2: one of the coolest parts about going to school here is that. 15 years later, I was able to work with and share stories with some of my icons, the people I looked up to in college, the people like Bruce Johnson and Jim Vance and Doreen Gensler. Uh, you know, these are people that, I, that I, I get to talk to and sort of rub elbows with. And I got to work with Bruce Johnson, for God's sakes. He's a, he's a local news legend.
0: So here's another another one that you'll appreciate then. Um, Steve Handelsman, who is also a, a local news legend, he retired four years ago, and he now coaches my kids on their recycle team.
2: You're kidding me.
0: That's what he's done with his time in retirement. Is he's a fully devoted coach to our. So actually I had a fangirl moment when I walked in the first day to one of their practices and I seen Coach Handelsman and I thought, well, that's funny. Handelsman, like like Steve Handelsman, that, that's so neat. And I walked in and I looked at him and i I started like freaking out and, and telling all the people around me who aren't even like, lo- you know, they didn't grow up here. They're people who are like kind of transplants. So I'm like, do you know who this man is? And I'm like pulling him up to show them. And so um, yeah, so that that's, I can appreciate that having grown up in this area and those 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 icons of, of, of our local media.
2: He's a class act, a, a fine journalist. I, I watched Steve for years.
1: So Adam, <laughs> so Adam, we, we could talk shop with you so much because I feel like, like so many viewers, when you watch the news, even these days with so many competing networks, you kind of feel like you know the people, even though you don't. So um, I know speaking for Lisa and me, we kind of, even, even though we've talked with you personally in person, we kind of feel like we already know you because we see you on TV and we see how you interact. And we also interact with you and you, like you said, you are sort of an investigative journalist as well, not sort of, you are an investigative journalist, reporter and anchor. And you work, it seems like, in the evenings, and you also have a family. So share with us a little bit about your family, and then talk to us a little bit about your running, but specifically, how do you fit it in with how you're doing all, how all these with all these balls in the air?
2: Yeah, so I think the, the conversation naturally needs to start with my first love, which is coffee because that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps the engine running. I mean, balancing a full-time job, more than a full-time job really, and then another job, and then running in triathlon, and then three kids and my wife, and now balancing a pandemic where everyone is home simultaneously, uh, time management has become uh, not only a skill, but uh, an essential part of of our lives. Um, I think that, 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 we can go, I guess, pre-pandemic first and talking about balancing it. One of the the blessings that I have in my job is what you mentioned. I work nights. So I'll work anywhere from you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock all the way up to 11 o'clock or midnight, depending on, on the news of the day. And so that allows me to get done a lot of things in the morning and early afternoon that most people that work a nine to five don't have the ability to do. I mean, the, the net result of that is also, I'm up at you know, 6.30, seven o'clock in the morning and I'm not in bed until one o'clock in the morning on most regular days and I'm driving my kids to school now that there's uh, you know, no buses and, um, uh, and, and things like that. Um, and talking about sort of the genesis of, of my running, um, I can track it back to elementary school. Elementary school is when I have my first memory of competitive running, not in a race, But just all the kids are out at PE and they're running laps. You know, who was doing it the best? And there were these twin brothers who were destined to be track stars, and they were always better than me. But it gave me something to shoot for. I wanted to have the most laps, I wanted to go the fastest. Um, After that, there was sort of a lot of ups and downs uh, in in my running Uh, in middle school and in my freshman year of high school. I ran cross country. after I, I wasn't that competitive, I was I was I was good, but I wasn't the best. Um, about my sophomore year is when I started to embrace journalism, and that started occupying more of my time. So I was putting my time and energy into that. Um, I would always you know work out with weights and just you know strive to be healthy and such. And then in through college, that sort of tapered off. I got away from running, put on a lot of weight, of course, after turning twenty-one and discovering the joys of beer. Um, and and then it got to the point. Uh, the year before I got married, um, I got married in two thousand five. So in two thousand four, I said, "Listen, I'm I'm, I'm a pretty a well, pretty big guy. There's a lot of long go to go around right now. So uh, I didn't want to look back on my wedding pictures and be this bloated mess. So uh, in two thousand four, I started you know just dieting, getting to the gym more, toning up. Didn't really get heavy into running and triathlon though until two thousand and nine. By this point, I'm living in Orlando. And I think a lot of people can trace the roots of their athleticism to having a key motivator in their life. And my motivator was a triathlon coach and friend in the neighborhood. Her name was Amy Badger. Um, She is an amazing woman. She is still a a fitness coach. She lives in Maine now. Um, And she got me interested in, in endurance athletic activities and in triathlon. So I actually did my first marathon in 2010, trained in 2009, did it in January of 2010. It was the Disney marathon Uh, finished, I I swear, four hours and 59 minutes and 30 seconds. So just under five hours, Um, you know, of course it was a walk run affair, but it didn't matter how long it took. The, The goal was to finish. Um, and then that spring is when I did my first triathlon, just a, a sprint triathlon, uh, on the, uh, East coast of Florida. And after that, I, w- I was hooked. It, it just, it gave me something to strive for. I mean, you see a lot of people working out and going to the gym and, and, and a lot of people, myself included back then were working out without purpose. I was working out to stay healthy, but I didn't have a goal. So having a marathon on the schedule, Having a triathlon on the calendar allows me now this block of time to work out, to be healthy, but work towards something, to work towards a goal. And that's why every subsequent year since 2010, I've had something on my calendar, whether it was just a half marathon, whether it was a sprint triathlon, and then now... Of course, pre-pandemic, it was a number of things on the calendar. It was a half Ironman, a full Ironman, a, a bunch of half marathons, a bunch of five Ks. Um, it just it just helps motivate me and keep me going.
0: So, were you coached for your first for that first race? Did that did she coach you for that first race?
2: Yes. And for your first so time. we, we, we coached with a group. So we were doing group runs in the morning um, and then work schedules started to get in the way. So I, I wasn't a, a faithful adherence to the group training all the way through uh, that training session. I did as much as I could. Um, and then when I ran the race, I ran the race by myself. Um, until I got to about, I can remember this so clearly, I got to about mile 16, quad cramps, you know, and I'm just like, I didn't know anything about nutrition or salt or Gatorade at that point. Um, and, and, and one of the girls who was part of that group stumbled upon me just sort of struggling down the course. And she became that, you know, how we talk about race angels, somebody who helps you to the finish line. Um, she was that person. She, she stayed with me and walk ran. The rest of the race like eight or ten miles with me to help see me across the finish line it was unbelievable like i sent her flowers afterwards i was like you saved me like it was just it was it was unbelievable um and that, that group dynamic uh that exists within the running community especially within a, a group of people that you've trained with is such a strong bond um i miss that uh obviously with the pandemic but i also miss that because the majority of my circle of friends are not into endurance athletics at all. The friends that I do have who are into that are, are back in Florida or they're in Arizona. I really don't have any solid core group of friends here in Maryland that uh, that do that. So I just do everything on my own.
1: Well, we can we can help you with that, Adam. Once the pandemic's over, we can we can hook you up with some people who are also we we may know a few who are also interested in endurance athletics in your area.
2: I'm badly um, in of friends, so help me.
1: We we, we can help you. Um, so let. How do, you, how do you? How did you then and how do you now truly fit it in? Because you mentioned earlier, you said, well, I wake up at 6 a.m. I go to bed at 1 a.m. I, I sustain myself on coffee. But truly, it's impressive what you're doing because we're, we're not advocates for people getting minimal sleep, which it sounds like you are. So we'll just set that aside. Okay. What are you doing after 10 years of this? Because you started in 2010, 11 years. What have you been doing? to tweak your training because you've had these massive improvements, but yet you've also had tremendous change in your life. You've had children and you've had moves in your career and you've moved cities, um, two, two more times since then to Arizona and then to DC, mm-hmm. yet you've been able to maintain all this. So share with our listeners, some of your secrets with your time management and how you manage the stress of, of those two huge life events with continuing to improve in your training.
2: Right. I think the first thing I could tell you and not just tell you, I can show you is I know for your listeners I'm holding up a picture of my wife, okay? So what this is is she's the adorable thing, by
1: the way for those that, who can't see, Melissa, she's adorable.
2: Thank you. What okay, you go have, ahead. What you have to know first, it's a carefully choreographed dance with your significant other in order to to balance all of the things that you need to do. So what I mean by that, for instance, um the beginning of the year is usually when i'll start to map out what i'm going to do races uh, for the calendar year and the very first thing i do is i ask permission well in advance of anything hey there's this race that i want to do so um uh, 2000 and what year are we in now so 2018 i did the san diego marathon um melissa this race is in june It's going to take me 16 weeks to spin up for it. You know there are going to be some Saturdays and Sundays that I've got to wake up early and do my long run. Like, is this manageable? Can we do this? And when the answer is yes, I know that I'm I'm locked in. It doesn't give me license to do whatever I want, whenever I want. But that's the first step in the right direction. Right? Happy wife, happy life. And for the ladies who are listening, it's 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 vice versa. If you can do this same thing uh, with your spouse, that that's going to lay the groundwork for a long way to come. Because then you can also hold it over their heads and say, "Hey, remember three months ago when you said it was cool, and now you're giving me grief about it? What's wrong with you?" So you can do things like that. Um, but so that that's the first and most important thing. The other thing is um, uh, just just sort of mapping out when I'm going to do things. The this, the hardest thing that I ever did was Ironman Maryland. And obviously the event itself is tremendously grueling and difficult, but the planning for it and the training for it, that is what truly turns your life upside down. So Ironman Maryland uh, was uh, September of 2019. Um, I basically trained nonstop from March of 2019 um, I, I set aside alcohol. There was no drinking for that entire six month period. I just didn't We can come back and I can tell you why I chose to do that, um, uh, in a couple of minutes, but I, I had to, I had to choreograph every single part of the training because I had friends who had done full Ironman races before. And I knew from talking to them that here's your life train for Ironman, go to work, go to sleep. That's it. And so, and eat,
1: um, and refuel, eat, eat. Yeah. but what about your kids? I mean, you still have to parent. Like, it's not like they're gonna. So, yeah. so yeah. yeah, go into that for a minute. Okay, so so,
2: yeah. so uh, again, we have to sort of rewind to to, to pre pandemic, and this is so waking up in the morning. My, my wife's already gone out the door at work, right? So it's my task to get everyone off to school, right? I have three kids: kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade, right? Full of energy. All right. So my task is waking up, getting them fed, handling anything that they need handled, ushering them off to the bus stop. And then at that point, it was taking my son to pre-K, waving goodbye. Some of those mornings waving goodbye in my triathlon suit because I literally went into the house, into the garage, got on my bike and went out the door Um, and then wasn't back some days until two o'clock in the afternoon you know, outfit, laundry basket, me, shower, I'm at work an hour later. Um, so that was that was those are those are the, the the rare exceptions, because those were the extremely long training days. Uh, and there wasn't too many of those, but there were a lot um, how I did that. And so basically, I'd see my kids for an hour in the morning, and then, you know, train, go to work, they're, they're always asleep when I come home because I come home so late. Um, and then the weekends is, is when we would generally uh, get time to rally. And so doing these longer events, I would always, so for instance, over the summer, um, I was training for a virtual marathon. And in order to minimize the impact on my family, I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning on Sundays to do my long run. So I'm wrapped up, having stretched, finished the run, you know, by like, you know, 8.30, nine o'clock, like it's family time. We're good to go. You know, my wife was kind of annoyed because I'd have to end up like going to sleep at like eight o'clock on a Saturday night. And like, you know, who does that? Um, But uh, it it was able to minimize the disruption on the family.
0: Now, does your wife do any does she do any um, running triathlon cycling?
2: Yeah, she's very active. She doesn't she doesn't do triathlon. She does um, just sort of recreational running. Um, She's done the uh, across the bay uh, 10K. Um, she does a lot of run walking in the neighborhood. She's a big fan of Zumba. She gets the kids involved in, in Zumba uh, doing that uh, like in the garage. We, we've got a little TV set up in the garage so she can plug her computer into it. And the kids love doing Zumba. They have like Zumba themed birthdays and stuff. And you know, before the pandemic, they would always go to group classes and, and do stuff like that. So we're, we're a very active family. We just have different uh, intricacies that, of how we stay active.
0: Right. Great. So she has her she has her own her her opportunities to get her exercise or her passions in as well. So you both are, you know, getting to to do what you what you love and setting great examples for your kids, obviously, since they're they seem to be taking after what you guys like to do. Do your kids bike, swim, bike, or run? Do they want to follow you in that?
2: i've tried to convince them of that we, we we had uh swim lessons obviously i keep saying pre-pandemic and, and i'm sorry that I, I i'm turning that into a cliche but obviously so many things have, have changed since since the pandemic um so their activity level I, has waned as has you know for a lot of other kids with uh, you know group activities not being um uh, on the schedule but um you know we're, we're, we're always taking them out they they're they are they've got their skateboards and scooters. And so, you know, when the, when the weather is conducive, I I try to get them out as much as I can. Cause that's also like chill time for me. Right. It's, it's finally, it's it's like, we can go to the park, which is right around the street from my house. You know, I can just sort of sit in a lawn chair and they can play. And if they want me to play with them, we'll go out there and kick a soccer ball and uh, play basketball and and do stuff like that. So um, yeah, once, once this whole thing is over and behind us, they're going to be worn out by the end of every day with the amount of things that we're going to, we're going to have them in. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that happening.
1: For sure. It's like, I've heard the phrase revenge travel lately for when the pandemic's over, it's like revenge, revenge activity, revenge, exhaustion, or whatever you want to call it. So you had mentioned your first marathon, you finished it in just under five hours and in spite of your busy schedule and all of the maneuvers you've had to do to fit in your training, you have improved significantly. So why don't you share with our listeners what your latest marathon PR is and a little bit about how you improved your time.
2: Okay. So uh, my, my marathon PR is a 333. Um, and that was actually, was it 2016? I did that. That was in the Knoxville uh, marathon, which is a, an extremely hilly course. Like I think that they they, they they purposely plotted it um, while they were grinning and, and, and talking about how how people are gonna fall out of this course. Um, but no with with every successive marathon and triathlon I've done I've always just sort of done a, a post-mortem and studied how can I get better like I, I enjoy running recreationally but I need to set a goal I need to get better my goal is to qualify for Boston. Um, I've I've entered into two races and come up short of that goal, but I've learned every time why I failed and what I need to fix to do better. I'll give you a perfect example. So when I ran the San Diego Marathon um, three years ago now, that was in uh, June of 2018. Um, my goal was 310, and I said okay because um, I think I think the qualifying standard at that point was 315. And so I I said, you know, if I can do a 310, I'll be good because of the 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 buffer. And you know, just because you you hit the qualifying mark doesn't mean you're going to get in. Um, So I knew that that meant I needed to run at a 715 pace. So I trained at a 715 pace. I did. I I felt like you know I I follow a, a book. I'll show you this book that I have here. It's called. Uh, advanced Marathoning. And if I can plug it, it's, it's from, uh, from these two guys, Pete Fitzinger and Scott Douglas. Uh, this book was referred to me by an incredible endurance runner. I'll tell you about him in just a second. Um, so I, I, I follow the layout in the book exactly what it wants me to do. I've got the right pace. I'm like in the training. I'm feeling good. Um, and um, I hit the wall at mile 20 in the San Diego Marathon. And my quads just locked and my calves locked the last uh, mile 20 to 22 was uphill and it was just brutal i ran the first 20 miles of that race in two and a half hours and it took me an hour and a half to run the last six so it was like oh brutal but the biggest thing that i learned from that race was nutrition and salt consumption um i learned that i needed more salt supplements than just like the, the goo gels uh, and the roctane gels. Um, so I started taking uh, the little uh, base salt uh, with the little canister that you just sort of, um, you know, tap your thumb on and then you just lick the, the, the salt spot off of your thumb. And that's what I did for Ironman Maryland. I did not have one cramp, the entirety of the Ironman race. 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, 26.2 mile run. It didn't cramp at all. Wasn't necessarily fast. Uh, I finished in 11 hours and 39 minutes. Um but but it didn't cramp. So I learned that. Um, Great
1: time by the way, finishing yeah. under 12 hours for an Ironman. That's quite impressive.
2: Yeah, and I, I did have a coach. I had a coach for that entire 6 months and she was laying out and telling me exactly what to do and how to do it. Um and I knew that, you know, my goal wasn't to go Thank you for that. My goal wasn't to go as fast as I could. My goal was to finish. Could I have gone faster? Probably, but I was more interested in finishing than going fast. Um, And uh, so I've learned so much about uh, nutrition, uh, about what I can eat the night before a race and not be struggling to get out the door the next morning. You know, staying away—at least for me—staying away from ice cream and any sort of dairy. Um, You know, I've learned, just sort of taught myself how alcohol plugs into all of this. Uh, I mean, I'm not—I'm not a heavy drinker, but just I didn't want one more thing, one more exigent factor to influence the quality of my training. Which is why when I I, uh, signed up and started training for Ironman Maryland, I just quit drinking. I said, I'm I'm not going to have one sip of anything until I'm done. And when I was done, let me tell you, there was a party um, and some tailgates. But uh, but but yeah, during that whole six months, I was I was I was pretty set. Um,
0: so Will you do another? Will you do another full?
2: I, I would like to. Um, I, I, the next one I'd like to do is uh, is Ironman Arizona uh, or possibly Ironman Cozumel. Um, I have a, a family member who, who lives in Mexico that would make that, that race conducive to do. Um, and I I've never traveled. Like I've never taken my bike on an airplane to do a race. So I think that that would be enjoyable. I loved Ironman Maryland. I wouldn't do the same Ironman race twice.
0: Yeah. No need to do that. Yeah. Did you have any races on the calendar when the pandemic hit? Did you have anything after post Ironman Maryland? Did you have anything that got canceled that you were training for? I
2: had three. Um, so I was training my brother was two years younger than me to run his first marathon we were going to do rock and roll dc last march and um that's the one that was the first one that went down because yep. uh, it was two weeks after it was the end of march and things started shutting down in the middle of march and you know it's disappointing it made sense uh, i suspect it was more disappointing for him that it was going to be his first um i was just more excited about just running with him and pacing him and, and helping him get to the finish line um um, so there was that race that fell by the wayside. Um, I'd already done my long run. It was, I was in taper, you know, when 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 they pulled the plug. I toyed with the idea of just doing my own little virtual marathon, and that was remember before virtual marathon was even a thing. Um, but then I just became so consumed with work and 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 all the stories that were coming out of the pandemic, uh, specifically federal employees was was a was a topic of stories that I did uh, repeatedly during that time. And so I just I just ran out of time, um, no pun intended. Uh, I also had a uh, half Ironman on the schedule in Roanoke. It was going to be the inaugural Blue Ridge 70.3. This would be the first uh, Ironman triathlon that uh, they allowed to take place on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, they are going to close the Blue Ridge Parkway and we would get to ride on that. So that one got canceled. Um, it's, it is it is up and running this year. So I'm I'm rolled over to, to, to do that one in early June. I hope that one goes off, knock on wood. Um, and then a third uh, marathon I was going to do was the uh, St. Luke's in Lehigh, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a uh, slight downhill, it's like, a week before Boston qualifying a window and I was going to use that as my BQ. Um, then they pulled the plug on that. So that one got deferred to this year. Also, what I ended up doing was just signing up for a uh, virtual marathon, the quad cities marathon. And I ended up running that in September, um, through Virginia and DC. And I did that in three forty-nine, I think it was. And that was just on my own. I parked at, uh, What's the joint across from National Airport? Roaches Run, the little park where you can see all the airplanes take off.
0: Gravelly Point. Um, yeah.
2: Gravelly Point. That's yeah. the one. Um, and I just like put bottles of water on top of my car and the gels on top of my car and I numbered them one, two, three. I, I looped back every eight miles um, and uh, did a little, uh, a nice little circuit through Virginia. And then the last six miles, I ran across the 14th Street Bridge and around the National Mall and then back to Gravelly Point.
1: That's great. I mean, that's impressive that you ran a virtual this year during these times in 349, given that, you know, again, your first marathon was just under five hours. So even though for you, a 349 was a, quote, easier effort, that's a tremendous improvement over, you know, the the 10 years you've been running. So it's quite impressive. That being said, what, what have you done to stay motivated during this time, uh, given that you are really busy. You are reporting on a a number of different stories all the time. I mean, the news has been nonstop during this year. What have you done to stay motivated with your running and to stay consistent? I can see you post a lot on your Instagram account, on your social media, what you're doing to stay motivated. You are very public about sharing your workouts, but there's got to be times when you are just emotionally exhausted from all of this reporting. What do you do on those days to keep it up?
2: Yeah, true. And, and and to be honest, what keeps me motivated is staying balanced. So if there is a window of time because things are happening, if if, if four days goes by and I haven't been able to run or do anything uh, athletic at all, that starts to weigh heavily, like in my mind and on my body. Like I can just feel myself acting differently. Like somehow things are just unbalanced and thrown out of whack. So I know that even if I'm tired, even if I have 900 other things that I have to do, if I don't run, if I don't get my heart rate up, if, if I'm not able to, to exercise, then the other areas of my life are going to suffer. And so it, it is just about this well choreographed, keeping everything balanced uh, mentality and, and knowing that you know I stay motivated in knowing that despite the fact that I'm 44, I'm still getting faster. Like I'm getting better. And if I take three weeks off, if I take a month off, sometimes it feels like if I take a workout off, I I won't be able to perform as well going forward. I want to keep outdoing myself and I want to keep doing better uh, or, or else I'm just not going to not gonna feel as good about what I'm doing, right? So I, I, it's, it's, it, I mean, I could I could say the same thing about my TV career is that I want to keep doing stories that are better than the competition. I want to do stories that are better than the story that I did two weeks ago, because when the day comes where the stories I'm doing aren't as good quality as the stories I did three months ago, three years ago you know, who's going to want to keep me around as a journalist? Like, you know, I I, I don't want to lose my passion for, for my career and, and for my, my athletic endeavors, right? I I always need to achieve and look to achieve something else. And that's one of the greatest things that I like about the the TV profession is that it's limitless. It's like, you can always outdo yourself. There's no ceiling you're ever going to get to. You're never going to be the best interviewer. You're never going to tell the best stories. There's always something to strive for and always something that you can do better. And that's what helps keep me motivated.
0: I was going to ask with, with all of the kind of stress and time consuming work that you have and, and, you know, some unpredictable un, unpredictability too, do you ever feel that stress or that work or the fatigue affecting your training? Are those are days you go out and you're just slower? You don't feel like, you know, and, and what do you do then?
2: Yeah. So this is exactly what happened, um, last year, last March and April, um, as, Everyone's lives are being upended by the pandemic, and now all of my kids are doing virtual learning rather than the bye-bye 9 a.m. bus stop routine. It was stressful, um, and it was—it it wasn't hard to motivate myself to run, but I could feel that stress and anxiety slowing me down. You know, um, I was going slower. Excuse me, and my heart rate was higher. And I'm thinking to myself, why is that? Is it because I have COVID? No, I didn't have COVID. That, that's not what it was. Am, am I sick somehow? Yes, I'm sick because I've got all this stress and anxiety built up. So I, I had to find some ways to cope with and, and deal with that stress and anxiety in order to temper that and, 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 and make it more conducive. Now, I needed to handle the stress and anxiety, you know not specifically just for the running just for my old you know personal life and well-being um but uh, you know it continues to be stressful for me for for, for everybody um you know my, my wife uh, transitioned jobs during the pandemic you know she's working from home um but but how do you work for i mean I, I get to go into the office i worked from home for six months and now i'm back in in the newsroom um, there's only five or six of us there at a time we're all socially distanced we're all wearing masks um, we're all very safe and, and, and everything has, has gone well. Um, uh, God willing, it will continue to go well. Uh, you know, but my, my wife is here constantly. And how is she supposed to get work done as this whirlwind of children are happening around her? Uh, so I sympathize and empathize with, with her on that. Uh, but, but the six months that I was working from home and doing everything from home while the three kids were here, I co-anchored a newscast from this room that you're seeing me in right now in this room that I'm talking to you in while my kids were upstairs. I mean, my wife had this just unfathomable task of keeping three small children quiet and out of this room so I could co-anchor a newscast. Uh, and she did it. She did a great job. Uh, there was tons of bribery involved, obviously, uh, to keep them silent. Um, but 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 that went well. And um, I feel like while we might not be as a society over the hump in the pandemic, and that's not, that's not an editorial comment, I'm saying, I don't know where we are in the scope of, of the pandemic, but you know, if we're not over the hump, I feel like at least as a family, we've gotten over the hump in dealing with how to effectively manage everything that's gone on since it started.
1: That's a great way of looking at it. It's it's back to that old phrase that we've heard a lot, radical acceptance, learning how to accept where we are right now and dealing with, with the stress and the obstacles that we can do the best we can under the circumstances. So you mentioned a little earlier that you felt a lot of stress initially in your runs and you just didn't feel well. A lot of our runners and ourselves, we've also experienced this. So I'd love to hear what um, tips do you have for people to manage that stress to be able to feel a little bit more normal on your runs what did you do
2: yeah i i had to slow down purposely not not only in like my pace while running <clears throat> but i had to slow down in the number of things that i was trying to, to accomplish in my life at that point um you know, it, 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 things that are, that are cliche or like, you know, take a breath, just calm down. It's like, we've all been in arguments with people or, or heated discussions. If somebody tells you to take a breath or calm down, it only enrages you further, right? It doesn't work, um, but we have to know in the calm moments, we have to consciously recognize what to do in the stressful moments and then rely back on the things that we know to do. If you can tell yourself to take a breath, or calm down, that's obviously going to work better than somebody else telling you to take a breath or calm down. So learning little techniques like that. um, I think the, the, the compounding stress of the whole thing, ultimately, you get to a point where it's like, at least I did, like, I can't feel like this anymore. This is damaging, you know, relationships. This is damaging, you know, my running. This is, this is, this is, I I can't walk around with this ball of stress. What am I going to do to help to untangle it? You know, um, and and having open and forthright conversations with my wife, uh, talking with my kids about expectations, what they can expect of me, what I can expect of them. I think having those earnest conversations was a was a was a big key in helping to decipher all of that and 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 managing and lowering the stress level.
1: That's great. So this is now a, a good time for us to ask you because you brought it up. Um, talk to us a little bit about your job and what what that's looked like for you over the past year and specifically you've done a lot of great investigative work and you've you've really touched on some things that other journalists haven't including uh you started with uh safety of federal workers where you were starting to really call out before any other investigative journalists that hey you know the government shut down but there are federal workers that are still going into their offices every day Particularly the IRS out in the Midwest, um sitting in cubicles. And I'm just giving that as an example to say that you were you you received a lot of criticism for your stories and you kept pushing. and you've been you've been doing that this entire year, and it's it's very impressive because that adds another layer of stress. So talk to us and tell us about how how that is going for you. And as a journalist, anchor, and reporter, What is it like to be in the trenches these days, particularly because it seems, and this is an editorial comment on behalf of just me, that people understand less and less the difference between fact and opinion?
2: Mm. So um, the T-shirt that I'm wearing right now has two words on it. It says facts matter. And that's one of the mantras of my um, uh, journalism school, uh, the the Merrill School of Journalism at the University of Maryland. it's important to know what journalists and what journalistic entities you can trust, because the amount of misinformation that has cascaded across the internet and only multiplied within uh, the past four years has been phenomenal. I mean, it's just been outrageous. That's what I meant to say. Um, just the, the rate of, of multiplication of how, how much more misinformation is out there. Um, but but to go and, and to talk about one specific niche of how the pandemic uh, affected people. Obviously here in the Washington DC area, there are a a great number of federal employees and contractors, Um, but this misconception that all federal employees and contractors are in DC, it is a big misconception because there are federal employees and contractors all over the country. Uh, People working for a a variety of different agencies, you know, the Department of Interior, the National Park Service, of course, the IRS. And and these are people who needed a voice in my view. So from the early days of the pandemic, the federal government was putting out directives on what agencies should do with their workforce to try to ensure their safety. What I was finding out is that many of these federal agencies were simply ignoring those guidelines that were coming from the federal government. And so I was calling out those agencies, the United States Postal Service, uh, the IRS, uh, the Smithsonian Institute, um, uh, and and, and a number of others. The VA hospital system was another one. Um, And and I became this central point of contact for hundreds of federal workers across the country who were trying to share their stories uh, with local media in their cities and they were just overwhelmed with the number of COVID related stories that were happening and just, just wasn't getting the attention. So I just sort of took that on. Um, And, you know, I, I, there are a number of it's easier for us here in the Washington DC area to have access to our our local members of Congress Um, and a a number of our members of Congress sit on key committees that have oversight of some of these uh, federal agencies. And so I, I was able to, to talk to them and sort, get some of this sorted out, but but it's still ongoing. Uh, in fact, the, the day that we're taping this episode, uh, I'm doing a big story about how there is a new White House directive under the Biden administration about uh, guidelines to keep federal employees safe, but one agency in particular at this moment in time, the IRS, isn't adhering to that. On this day, they are literally starting to bring thousands of employees back to offices nationwide. While at the same time, the federal government is saying you can only have 25% of normal capacity in these buildings. So that that's a story that that just keeps on going um almost a year now into the pandemic.
0: You kind of alluded to, you know, COVID taking over the the you know the news and and overshadowing a lot of other stories. How how has COVID changed the way you, you know, you work, your job, how you report, how you, you know, how you identify stories that you're going to pursue? How, how has COVID changed your work life?
2: Well, for, for one thing, there is an impeachment trial of a former president happening in the United States Senate right now. And the day that the article of impeachment was delivered was not the lead story. That should tell you something about the world that we're living in right now. The lead story was obviously the story that had the most impact. And that's about the vaccine rollout and how it's being implemented uh, in the state of Maryland, in DC and and in Virginia. Um, But yes, COVID has changed the way that I've done my job and everyone else at the WSA newsroom has done their job a, a great deal. As I mentioned, I was remote from March until about mid-September and then they started you know they they wanted to get key people uh, back into the building I'm not trying to like float my own boat here but it's like you know you want your news anchor in the building right you you need the director in the building Uh, um, most of our producers are still working remotely so like I said there's maybe six people max In the newsroom at a time. They've got these big, um, you know, transparent shower curtain, you know, plastic film up uh, in between all of the stations. Everyone's masked. Uh, You know, we're masked except for when we're in the studio. And when we're in the studio, there's no more than four of us in the studio at a time. And we're all in different parts of the studio. My co anchor, Leslie, is over here. I'm over here, uh, at least six feet away. It's more like 10 feet, you know. Uh, Topper, our chief meteorologist, is over there. And then there's one. Um, production assistant running the camera uh, and the teleprompter. Um, I, w- one way it's changed for the better, uh, if if I dare say that, is is access and being able to do things over Zoom. I mean, it would take if if I needed to interview uh, Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen. You know, pre-pandemic, it's you know set up the interview. Okay, what time works for you? He's got to get ready. I've got to get ready. I've got to get in a car, go to Capitol Hill, go to his office, go through security. It takes a couple hours. Right. I talked to Senator Van Hollen on Tuesday night. We just set up a, a, a Zoom interview. The thing was over and done with in 10 minutes. Right. So it's giving us a lot more time to be able to, to work on things when you don't have to drive and, and, and go meet somebody in person. Now, obviously, things things get lost in that. Because you know when when I when I meet with sources and I and I interview people, you know usually there's a time after the interview is over and the camera has stopped rolling that we just get to sort of like talk off the record and, and talk about other stuff that might be in the pipeline or, or now to come. And now it's like those conversations are a little uncomfortable because it's like, okay, is he still recording me? How do I know? Like is whatever going on? I, I'm not saying that anybody is thinking that. I'm just it's it's less comfortable uh, than than the situation before. Um, but you know, wearing masks. Um, when I covered the inauguration, I was on a rooftop overlooking the White House. Um, there were a group of ten reporters up there, all lined up from different parts of the country. So, ten reporters, ten cameramen and women. Um, you know, we're all masked up until that moment right before they come to us on the air to to, to do our thing. Um, you know, we we have to stay safe. I mean, luckily for me, um, I've been safe, taken precautions, stayed safe not gotten COVID. My family's been safe. Um, and, uh, and, and I chalked that up to, you know, us, us taking, uh, the proper precautions as, as, as much as we can, you know, we're not out, you know, uh, traveling around and gallivanting and we're, we're not, we're not doing things. We're, we're, we're purposely living our lives, um, in a way to avoid our exposure to the virus.
1: Adam, what do you, what do you do? Um, and, and what are you and your colleagues discuss with respect to, the fact opinion problem we're having right now and and the issue where people suddenly look at the media as the enemy. Um, There's a lot of blame on quote the mainstream media versus looking at the media as a source. And we, we know, we know why this has happened. We we've seen it play out, but the question is what, what can we do now to bring people back to the point where they can trust the media? And what do you, what do you think needs to be done, including education?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that there are, it is very easy to paint the media as a target. The only thing that I can do is to show people that I am a trustworthy reporter, and to do stories that indicate that I don't have any political or editorial bias in the stories that I'm telling. There there is not one person or one group that overlords the quote unquote media. Media is comprised of stations and ownership groups and individual journalists. So the only thing that I can do for the betterment of of the first amendment and for the, the betterment of the journalism profession is be the best journalist I can be and to present things in a informative, factually non-biased way. Um, and the more that I do that and the more people come into my corner and see the value of that kind of journalism, the better. I mean, I, I look back um, uh, at, at people who are out of the business, people like Jim Lair. You know, the uh, PBS news anchor who moderated, you know, a handful of presidential debates was was held up uh, as this model of uh, impartiality and nonpartisanship. And I can remember after one uh, presidential debate that he moderated, um, I think it was with uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore, but I could be mistaken. Um, Somebody was. Somebody asked him afterwards. Like there, there was there was no spark. There was no fire in that debate. And he said something to the effect of, um, "You know, if it's it's not a clown show. If people want a clown show, they can they can go to the circus. Like politics shouldn't be a spectator sport. And I think it's been it's been amplified to the fact, uh, and amplified to the point where people look at Republicans and Democrats." like they look at uh the the Ravens versus the Steelers you know should it should it be like that um you know if you're if you're you know that's how we're playing we're 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 playing favorites and we're playing teams that's not my job as a news reporter uh to play favorites and, and play play teams um I will say this, the one particular challenge that I have in in doing political stories that affect local people in this area is the entire DC, Maryland, Virginia, congressional and senatorial delegation that represent this area are Democrats, right? So the only Republican Senator in our viewing area is Shelley Moore Capito in West Virginia. Um, And there are only two Republican congressmen who touches, whose whose districts touch part of our area. Um, and that is uh, Eddie Harris from the Eastern shore of Maryland and uh, Rob Whitman, who is uh central Virginia. Some of his district leaks up into our market. So um, it, it's often difficult to get a Republican reaction uh, to things when, when we have just a preponderance of, of Democrats in our local congressional delegation.
1: <clears throat> what about social media? How that has definitely changed the trajectory of how you report stories and when you started out you didn't have to sort of compete or in your case have the use of social media as a tool to enhance your stories how have you and your colleagues found that to be a challenge and also an asset
2: so it's definitely a challenge in, in terms of it being time consuming, uh, but I, I definitely think it's more of an asset because social media helps us to amplify our stories and, and, and get the message out there. Um, you know, in, in the DC market, we've got a, a, a potential available audience of 2.2, 2.4 million people. On social media, you have an audience that is only limited by people with internet access around the world. So the stories that are important, um, people share. And while television stations are fighting for shares of, of, of local audience uh, in their own market, digitally, we're fighting for shares of, of audience across the United States and across the world. Now, I wouldn't say that's a concerted effort. Our goal is to provide you know, uh, informative uh, news to, to people in, in this area. But of course, a lot of the stories that we do here in the nation's capital have interest both um, in the United States uh, and around the world. So. I don't look at it like that. I, I, I think broadly that's that's um, how it's an asset, but I look at it like when, when I'm on social media, when, I, when I'm sending tweets, when I'm updating things on Facebook, how is this helping uh, the people that, that I serve at this television station and, and in this area? This is a story that is of interest to them. Um, here, here's what I think that they should know about it and just present it that way, uh, straight facts, no bias.
0: Do you have any favorite stories looking back on your career? I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of them, but are there any that stick out in your mind? You can go back to pre-COVID times because I yeah. think the last exception of lots of news being thrown at us, but is there anything that you know sticks out in your mind as, yeah. as memorable?
2: Absolutely. So I held up this book for you a few minutes ago, this advanced marathoning book. The person who recommended that book to me, his name is Rob Pope. And Rob Pope is a distance runner from England. <clears throat> And he came to the United States three years ago and he did the Forrest Gump run. So he started in Alabama. He ran to Santa Monica, California. He ran all the way back to the East Coast and then zigzagged back and forth and ended his run in Monument Valley, Utah. One of the most amazing, motivating, happy go lucky people I've ever met in my life. Uh, he, he didn't have much of a support system when he was doing this run. I mean, his, his girlfriend at the time, wife now, um, was, was over here with him and they had a camper and they had some friends, but as they got deeper into the run, it's sort of like, Hey man, we, we got to go back home. Like you're kind of on your own now. Right. I think, you know, visas were expiring and things like that. And so they had to go back home to England and, and he kept up. And so I met him, um, he had done Alabama, to Santa Monica, had come back and was coming up through Virginia, up through D.C. I met him in Laurel and uh, we just talked about running. We went for a little jog together and the cameraman is jogging along with us as we're as we're doing the interview. And we if if, if any of you um, want to see that story, just just do a Google search, search Rob Pope and Adam Longo or Rob Pope and WUSA 9. And you'll see put the- it in the show notes. Okay, great. You'll, you'll see the stories that, that we did with him. I mean, such an incredible guy. I mean, so cool that um, uh, I, I I called my dad and I said, dad, this was months later. I was like, this guy I met for this story, he, he's going to be coming through your town. Uh, my dad lives in Tennessee. And I was like, um, you, you got to go have dinner with him. He's just fascinating. And so my dad went out to dinner with him and and a couple of other people. Um you know not 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 too many stories really sort of you know touch you personally and 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 want you want to expose it to to, to everything else but rob is just such a, a fascinating character a great story about him is you know and however long it took him to do the run i don't, I don't remember you know more than a year obviously um, when he finished in monument valley utah he proposed to his girlfriend right there at the finish line it was crazy um He's got video of that. It was just like just this, this insane thing. Um, but but in talking with him, and I and I still keep up with him and we talk on, on, on social media. Um, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a vet tech <laughs> in England. Um, and he did this big run across America. So that was cool. Um, I, I've, done, I've done other stories. When I worked in Knoxville, I got to do a story where I spent a couple of days in Paris Island, South Carolina, which is the uh, uh, marine boot camp. Um, and I got to see Marine recruits through each stage of their training. It's a it's an 11 or 12 week training that they go through there before they move on, uh, graduate boot camp, and go to the next step. Uh, Paris Island, South Carolina, is notorious um, as a uh, as a place that 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 turns you know uh, uh, Americans, um, young uh, soldiers, into Marines. Um, and, and seeing them through that process, and being able to talk with them about that, uh, seeing their families there on the on the graduation day, we got to s- to stay for that and see the transformation uh, of their sons and daughters. Um, was amazing. Those are the stories that really do stick out. Um, other stories that I've done that 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 you all would probably be familiar with. So, when I lived in Orlando, I covered the entirety of the uh, Casey Anthony murder trial, um, all the way from the beginning of when uh, little Kaylee Anthony went missing, all the way through uh, Casey Anthony's murder trial. Um, so that was a that was a story that we were doing daily for the stations I was working at, and then the trial, of course regular programming got kicked to the side we were wall to wall on the air covering that trial for six weeks um in the early summer of uh, 2011.
1: I mean can you imagine that happening today there's just no way all of the days of court tv were one trial, you know, that started with OJ Simpsons, but there were a couple of trials, Casey Anthony, and there was another one of Lacey and Scott Peterson. That's another one, you know, why can, why is that rolling off my tongue? Because back in the day, news would cover a trial like that was the biggest news, not anymore.
2: Jody Arias was another one, and I covered that case in Arizona. Uh, I think the, the reasons for that, the reason that the Casey Anthony case, in, in my opinion, got so big was because of the Freedom of Information Act laws and the Sunshine laws in Florida. Because there was so much access uh, to open access to court materials, there was always some sort of new nugget of information that kept the story alive and kept it at the forefront, whereby, you know, here in, in Virginia and in Maryland and in D.C., there is not that degree of transparency uh, in court proceedings, um, in, in litigation. We were literally seeing discovery. That's the process where the opposing attorneys hand over information to each other. In Florida, at least it was the case then, I don't think they've changed it. When a defense attorney or a prosecutor hands over discovery information to the other side at that instant in Florida, it becomes public record. And that doesn't happen pretty much any other place. So we're literally seeing things and reading documents, calling the attorneys and asking for them to comment. And they're like, we talking about, we haven't even seen this yet. Like you guys saw it before us, Um, you know, in in Maryland and Virginia, that would never work because you you can't even have cameras in the courtroom unless there's a wild exception uh, to that.
0: I think it's notable that you, um, you know, the the most memorable stories for you aren't even related to, you know, you're, you're a journalist in the nation's capital and you could have lots of stories about, you know, politics here and um, plenty of really interesting stories, but I think that it, it's remarkable that your stories are more kind of the human interest of like people that you really, that really um, made a mark on you and uh, didn't, don't even have anything to do with your, you know, with being in DC and being in the middle of our nation's capital.
2: I think time will tell. I think looking back on this, you know, five, 10 years from now, I mean, I will always remember January 6th, I will always remember what happened at the Capitol and the stories that we did that day and subsequent days. Uh, I mean, not since 1814 has the Capitol faced a siege like that. Um, it, it was it was unbelievable and just unreal as it was happening. Um, and and that will be something that you know I'll tell my grandkids about because God willing, it will never happen again, and they'll they'll want to know because that will be what's in the history books. 25, 30 years from now, this moment.
1: Absolutely, and um, it, it also, for us living here, it was also our local news. I mean, we all had friends and family who were hiding in the Capitol and were very, very scared for their lives while waiting for the, the insurrection to end after several hours, not knowing when help was on the way. And it was an, it was an appalling situation, a horrible story for all of us watching anywhere we live, but here it was also a local story. So your reporting was was extra important. And in fact, your station um, released a story a day later that really did have a local um, perspective. It was when they interviewed the officer who talked about uh, how he was in the middle of the mob and they interviewed him, I forget, his name um, escapes me. You may know
2: He was a DC police officer.
1: Yes. Yes. And he discussed it. And He was the one that said when when the reporter asked, do you have anything to say? He said, to those who helped me get out of the mob, thank you and F you. Um, yes. That was his famous quote. But he I, I think- you
2: for being there. Yeah. Yes,
1: F you for being there. Exactly. So yeah, I think your station and the other local stations did an excellent job of reporting sort of what was going on inside the Capitol, aside from the General reporting of the actual insurrection. There were personal stories within there. And it was the
2: same thing. I was texting people who I knew were inside of the Capitol, asking them if they were okay. And it was just a quick response, yeah, I'm okay. And then it's okay. We got to move on now to the next thing. One thing that I knew that was going to be important for the historical record is that I did a a series of stories in the days after um, talking to the members of the House and Senate about their experiences. Inside of the House and Senate chamber. So um, being able to leverage the contacts I made from working in Arizona, uh, I did a story with Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego and Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema, because you'll recall when the siege happened, it was Arizona's electoral votes uh, and the certification that was being called into question. Uh, Senator Cinema was talking on the Senate floor. When Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman led the rioters away from the Senate door, had he not been there, had that situation unfolded any differently, the Senate was full of members uh, who could have been assaulted uh, at that moment. And then, of course, on the House side, you know, I, I talked to local Congressman Jerry Connolly, who said that you know he watched as security apparatus came into the room, took Nancy Pelosi out of the room so fast she left her phone behind on the dais. Um, and, And talking about all the things that unfolded after that, a Capitol police officer took to the dais where the speaker and the vice president had been minutes before, a police officer, and announced to everyone in the chamber, you need to pull out the gas masks that are underneath the seats in the House chamber. I mean, this is just like this is Jerry Bruckheimer, like movie script type stuff, but it's actually happening right now on the floor of the House of Representatives. So I knew it was important that that while these memories were fresh in their minds, that I needed to talk with them uh, and get them on the record um, uh, to be able to tell those stories, not only for our viewers now, but also so that we're able to look back on this, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from
1: now. Well, thank you for doing that because as your shirt says, facts matter. And the only way that we're going to be able to receive those facts is getting in there and getting the stories from the people who experienced them themselves so they can share what happened. So thank you for doing that. And ironically and coincidentally, we had scheduled to record our interview with you on January 6th. So clearly we had to cancel. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't gonna work out. Um, No. So, Adam, before we wrap up, we just wanted to ask you one last question, and that is for those listening who um, are thinking about a field in journalism or media or have kids who are thinking about a field in in a career in your field, what advice do you have for them?
2: Yeah. Um, Call me. Email me. Tweet me. Facebook me. Like, I'm I'm happy to talk to anybody who, who wants to discuss that. I mean, as somebody who uh, is not only a, a working, working and practicing journalist, as a you know adjunct journalism professor, uh, and somebody who's 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 involved. I'm the vice president of our local National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences uh, chapter. Uh, here in the uh, national capital, Chesapeake Bay region. Um, so, not only am I doing the job, I also have a great interest in you know protecting the First Amendment and protecting journalism and and being active in in, in things like uh, the Society of Professional Journalists and the Radio Television uh, News Directors Association. So, to, to get to the the meat of your question, anybody who wants advice on getting into media, they have children that they want to advise on it. Um, Number one, it's not a lucrative career. Number two, it's a very time-consuming career. Uh, number three, it is a career that is going to take you away from your family on uh, weekends and on holidays. Uh, and at the drop of a hat when big news happens, you got to go. Um, so there, there's <laughs> there's a big reason that a lot of the uh, network reporters and anchors you see. Um, Maybe a lot of them is a stretch, but a lot of them that I know are single and and don't have families. I mean, it is a hard life when you when you've got a family, and especially when you have kids. Um, but it's worth it. I mean, there is a reason that the founding fathers of this country protected press with the First Amendment. Right, the Bill of Rights is ten amendments. We got the first one. Um, And so it's, it's, it's just as important as, as government. It's just as important as all these other professions that come together and help make our democracy function well. Um, Without a strong press, you don't have a democracy. So it's, it's, it's it's to me it's just critically important i mean it, it it might sound cheesy but i feel like i'm i'm doing my part to to help prop up america um leaders need to be held to account tough questions need to be asked and anytime you see somebody who is not willing to answer tough questions or be put in the position to be asked tough questions anytime you see somebody who's only willing to go on friendly media outlets that that's not how a healthy democracy functions. Um, You know, President Biden and the new press secretary, Jen Psaki, they don't get a pass just because people think, oh, the whole media is left wing and now they've got who they want in the White House. Watch the briefings, watch the press conferences with the president. There are hard, difficult questions being asked. Uh, I was lucky enough to to leverage some of the relationships that I have uh, in the White House press room that I was able to get a question asked on on the day of the the first press briefing. I had uh, one of the newspaper pool reporters, Deborah Saunders from the Las Vegas newspaper ask, Uh, about D.C. statehood and where it was in the list of priorities for the White House. Um, She wasn't able to answer that question immediately. The next day she came back and said, you know, of course, the president supports D.C. statehood, but that's an issue that's important for for our local jurisdiction. And and I knew that that was an important question to ask immediately, even if it was going to make it uncomfortable, you know, that's not my job is to to figure out whether or not you're comfortable with my questions. My job is to ask the hard questions that the people of this area want answers to.
1: That's great advice and and great insight. And we so appreciate your time today. Um, As you noted early in this recording, you are a very busy man and we don't (laughs) take it lightly that you took an hour to speak with us and provide some valuable insight about your experience as a journalist and course your experience as a runner and we so appreciate your time and energy today and we know our listeners will really enjoy hearing from you i have one
0: last follow-up question adam i have to know what happened to the twins from your your like elementary school or whatever middle school days those twins (laughs) that were winning all races what happened to them
2: i think they went to stanford on running scholarships
0: okay that's pretty decent (laughs) i think (laughs) Now I can go track them down. I just wanted to know what happened to them. Yeah, you know, I'm always curious to find out what happens to those young, you know, like phenomenal athletes. Do they grow up to be, you know, also phenomenal athletes or do they grow up to be just ordinary? I'm
2: going to double check and confirm that if I'm totally wrong, I, I will email you so you can update the notes of this podcast. <laughs> been, I've
0: been dying to know.
2: To reflect, but, uh, but listen, no guys, it, it's been, it's been really fun. Um, I feel like I've made uh, two new friends. Um, I, I love talking about journalism. I love talking about running, and, and we got to do both, so that's been fantastic.
0: And Thank you so We'll you up with some running friends, and we'll hopefully see you at some races, and um, you know, keep training because those races will come back eventually.
2: Oh, we're all going to be back soon. <laughs> I can feel it. I've got I've got one race on the schedule at the end of April. Uh, this is the makeup race with my brother that we're going to run. So, um,
1: revenge I- racing.
2: Exactly. Revenge racing. But take it slow. Don't go too fast. You'll hurt yourself. I've hurt myself plenty in the past. I'm not trying to repeat those mistakes.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Adam. We really appreciate it.
2: It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others. And please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.